We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with built environment professionals about empathetic projects with really challenging briefs and how they approach the design of building typologies that are politically or ethically charged. Our guests in this episode are Tanya Davidge and Christine Phillips, who are based in Victoria. Tanya and Christine have been involved in multiple campaigns that highlight when the public should be better engaged and recognised in the development of the built environment. Tanya and Christine share some stories about revealing the difficulties of navigating the city through the Urban Tactility Program with Open House Melbourne, working with Indigenous communities designing for country with RMIT, and the importance of listening and action for underrepresented groups. I'll now hand over to Kimberly Huey, who is an Imagine representative based in Victoria. Let's jump in. Well, firstly, Tanya and Christine, thank you so much for your time this morning in sitting down with us here at Architecture Podcast and talking about empathy, which evidently in my personal experience, I find empathy is such an important yet also a very broad term for many of us as designers and architects to grasp. Of course, it's quite natural in our process, but I think when we unpack it, it can be quite overwhelming. To kickstart off the conversation, I think I would like to ask both of your opinions in terms of what empathy means to you in the world of architecture as well as academics. Thank you for the invitation. And firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Yellicut Willen people on whose unceded lands I'm talking to you from today. And I think it's a good position to start in relation to architecture to think about being empathetic to our First Nations people and recognise and consider whose lands we are actually living on, working on and practising on. And I think, you know, in relation to architecture, empathy and architecture, well, it's an interesting one because inherently as architects we are demanded or required to be empathetic in that we work for people from different disciplines, our clients vary enormously, the people that use the buildings we design vary enormously and that requires us to be aware of that and to take into consideration different experiences and the way that different people might experience the buildings and the built environment around us. I mean I think Empathy, I suppose, as an architect in a professional sense, it's about being able to place ourselves in other people's shoes and then design to their needs. So it's a really important quality to have as an architect. I think we need empathy for the people who use our buildings and actually, you know, as Christine said, to recognise that, you know, it's a really diverse range of people that we design from and we need to have empathy so that we can design our buildings and our cities in a way that makes 
uh, people from all walks of life feel welcome. So how did this occur to you that empathy is a very huge part of your projects? Because something in our conversation today, I would love to for both of you to share with us your experience on the Melbourne Open House Project. So the Urban Tactility one, and then Christine, I would love for you to further expand on your Indigenous Partner Design Studios at RMIT. Um, but yeah, prior to that, how did that come about to you? Was that something that has always been at the forefront of your design practices or that's something that has evolved over time? I think probably I first started thinking quite hard about it when we worked on the Urban Tactility Project. And the idea for the Urban Tactility Project, I think, actually came out of initially kind of a spatial and a graphic idea. My family was in Oslo and we were at Snowheader's beautiful opera house. And there was a line of these beautiful bronze tactile indicators that led up to the door of the museum. And my kids were saying, what are these things? What are they used for? And so I I explained to them what, how they're used to help people navigate the city. And they were playing with them and we tested them out and we tried to walk them blindfolded. And then Christine and I kind of developed this idea for a project based around tactile indicators and experiencing the city through different people's perspectives. And I realised, I suppose, that stepping into this space, I didn't have all the knowledge required to deal with this issue. And empathy plays quite an important role into stepping into a space that you don't know about. I suppose in this case, a space of low vision and blindness. So we we were commissioned as the keynote programming for Open House Melbourne in 2019. We had worked with them over three years and we'd developed these tours that were based on looking at the city and from a sensory perspective and the tours we took with mobility and orientation specialists from Vision Australia and finally we got the project off up and running in 2019 it was installed in the courtyard of the immigration museum and it invited people to walk a mile in someone else's shoes so it asked our participants we asked our participants to experience the city from the perspective of someone living with low vision and blindness and we installed uh, over 3,500 custom-made tactile indicators, so the little bumps on the pavements and the streets, um, in the Immigration Museum courtyard. And over the course of the weekend, we led over 500 people blindfolded through the exhibition. And basically, the tactile indicators described our spatial and sensory journey through the immigration courtyard. And if you've ever been to the Immigration Museum courtyard, um, it's a beautiful space. It's got lots of different levels. It has water features. There's a community herb garden in there. Um, And so we talked to people about um, what it was like to experience the city from the perspective of someone living with low vision or blindness. And we also started the tour by asking them or showing them how to help or offer help to somebody in the city with low vision and blindness to help them navigate. And that was actually a really empowering thing. Basically, you offer your elbow. So you don't grab them. You know, you ask them if they need help. And if they do, you offer them your elbow. So they're in control and they can let go of your elbow whenever uh, they feel comfortable or whenever they want. And so immediately you begin from a position of respect and you don't take control of their body and their movement you allow them to take control of it themselves. And I think for me, that was one of the most empowering things that we learned from that is just how to offer help respectfully. 
And so the installation was really successful. It was amazing. We had so many people come through. We had wayfinding designers. We had public transport experts from Arab. We had design studios. We had people living with low vision and blindness. We had people who uh, were hearing impaired on some of our tours, which was fascinating. And um, we ran three talks around the project. One focused, I suppose, was more of an artist talk that focused on the work itself and another two talks, one which focused on the sensory nature of the city and why we should slow down uh, and pay more attention um, to our cities. And the other talk was about the rights to the city. So what kind of things made the city welcoming to all? Um, and it was a really beautiful experience. And I think one of the most powerful things that came out of that experience for me was when uh, an employee from the Immigration Museum came up to me and said, we've had this woman call um, and I just wanted to tell you all about it. She said to me, she said, I can't make it to the exhibition because it was only up for three weeks. But my son lives with blindness and there is absolutely nothing in the city designed for him. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that you've popped this exhibition on. And it was really, really beautiful to see the way it affected people. And we weren't looking really to solve the issue of how you navigate the city if you live with low vision or blindness. But we were interested in prompting a conversation on how we might design the city better for people of different abilities. And it was a pretty interesting experience. I mean, I learned so much from that project. And listening to Tanya's first idea and from her travels, I mean, it really got me thinking. But actually, when I reflect on a lot of the projects we've both done, I think we were thinking about it earlier because we've also done a number of projects with children. And at the time, I didn't have any children of my own. And it really got me thinking about how children experience the city and how they think about space and we ran a, we've run a number of projects involving children and children's workshops where they've asked them to design spaces, think about the world around them and come up with their own visions. We did one with the Frankston City Council. We also worked on a project at the M Pavilion and with children where we asked them to think about what a pavilion was and how they might design their own pavilion. And it was so much fun. We had all these materials. We had plasticine. We had icy pole sticks. And it was really interesting to think about architecture from the perspective of a child and how they experience the world and how they experience the city as well. So I guess we had some greater clarity about thinking about empathy in those projects partnered with Vision Australia. I think we'd already been begun that journey of empathy and architecture with some of those earlier projects as well. Yeah, what we what we do and what we're both really interested in is communicating the built environment to public audiences. And so to do that, we have to step outside of our kind of professional expertise a little bit and really think about how somebody might experiencing the spaces that we are taking them through or showing them or um, wanting to, them to look at. So it's a very different way of communicating architecture. We're not doing it from a professional level where we're talking about a building that isn't there yet. We're helping people to understand how the city is shaped 
and made. And so we have to think in different ways about how we communicate that. And we have to understand how our audience might be listening to what we're saying. And then we need to listen to our audience to understand how they're engaging. So empathy actually is a huge part about it. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way yet. Yeah, I think it's interesting having children being engaged in these practices because I think they're one of the best audience, if not one of our best clients, in quotes, to ask us all these questions because that then challenges us in what we want to do and how do we better their practices. Then in terms of when partnering with Vision Australia, I'd like to ask about whether any challenges in particular when working with them because evidently we haven't been in their shoes before and in frequent access to knowing what it is like. Uh, did you, what was your experience when uh, during that collaboration process? Um, we work primarily with a mobility and orientation uh, specialists at Vision Australia and they were fantastic. They were so interesting. So what a vision and what a mobility and orientation specialist does is they help people uh, with low vision and blindness to navigate the city. So some of the people we worked with had clients that might, you know, be starting new jobs or starting a new semester at university. Mm-hmm. And so they would help them to find the cues in the city and navigate the city in such a way that they could get to their classes or their jobs or, or whatever they needed to do eventually by themselves. And there's all these different amazing spatial cues that you use that are sensory, that are absolutely fascinating. So in summer, for example, trees provide shade and where that shade is, the city is cooler. And so you can navigate uh, the city by understanding its temperature. Another hilarious thing that we discovered was that subways are fantastic. Those subway restaurants are fantastic (laughs) navigational tools because they have an incredibly distinctive smell. So we learned a huge amount from these mobility and orientation specialists and they helped us with our tours. So we started the project by taking tours. We took tours of the NGV and we took tours of the RMIT Academic Street, the new Academic Street. So they also helped us do tours for the when the Urban Tactility Project finally came on board. And I think the new Academic Street was interesting because some of the people that came on the tour with us uh, had varying levels of visibility we had one woman who was completely blind we had another woman who had low vision and they had very different experiences and needs for their own ways of navigating around those spaces so that was an interesting thing to think about architecturally because you know how do you actually design for multiple users multiple experiences and allow for those different needs and requirements within the design of a building is a, is a great challenge. But it does remind us of how we really need to be more inclusive of different needs and different user groups within the design of our cities. And that it's really important for architects to actually take that into consideration and take that on board. And I think on that point too, architects need to remember that we can't always provide the full solution, right? There are always going to be places and spaces that are more challenging for different people depending on what, you know, where you're at in life. 
And we all live on a spectrum of ability to disability, you know, like really young children need help. And as we age, we also need help. In fact, Vision Australia's client group is growing because we're all living longer and eyesight is one of the things that goes. So that's quite an interesting thing to note and to remember that we're all going to probably need a bit of help. I already get a bit of help with my glasses. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're all going to need more and more help uh, in this space as we get there. And I think it was really fascinating. So we had Lauren on the tour uh, who was blind and, you know, we had to really remember to speak very descriptively for her. Christine was obviously fantastic having uh, worked on a radio show <laughs> before, being able to describe things and paint pictures with words. It was beautiful. And then I remember Anna, Anna had a guide dog and she had low vision and she actually was really interesting because she talked to us about how certain things such as lighting could act as a navigational device for some people with certain forms of low vision, but for others, um, certain lighting's prohibitive because there's a multitude of different ways you can have low vision and designing for one way doesn't solve or doesn't create solutions for other people. So it was quite fascinating to understand the uniqueness and the breadth of experience that comes in that community. Going on to the topic of that we can't design for everybody, it's evident that as, as architects we always have a set of codes that we design to. So like having those Australian standards for the DDA, so for some who would know the term AS1428, we'd love to try and design for everybody, but obviously if those dimensions and spaces can work for a majority group of people but it doesn't necessarily always cater to somebody else so that's exactly yeah exactly right it's not something that can be easily solved through our building codes and regulations but they are they are important they do have an important role yeah absolutely i mean you know architects do a lot of complicated things um, we have to do a lot of complicated things. And if we think about the kind of building codes and design manuals as shorthand that help us do these complicated things, then obviously they're very important. But we also need to remember that those standards and manuals quantify the minimum standards. And they also rely on standardised bodies. So if we think about who writes those manuals and those standards, um, we know that structural bias is going to come in and be codified within them. So I saw this fantastic talk once by a design writer called Peter Hall, and he was talking about how there was this group of industrial designers who were designing snowboard helmets for one of those really big snowboard companies. And the helmets were selling fantastically in North America, and they weren't selling at all in Japan, and the Japanese are mad skiers and snowboarders. And so basically they got together a group of Japanese snowboarders and they said, why aren't you wearing our helmets? They're fantastic. They're top of the range, la, 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 la. And the snowboarders said, well, they don't fit our heads. They're not comfortable. And basically this was because the industrial designers were designing to a design manual, similar to probably our graphic standards design manual, right? Mm -hmm. That that was based on a survey of um, European and North American bodies. And so, you know, so they're basically excluded <laughs> a whole range of people from buying these things and using them because 
of embedded biases mm -hmm. in our design manuals. So, you know, the design manuals and codes are important, but we need to think deeply about what they mean and then where the gaps are and what the opportunities uh, might be in those mm -hmm. gaps. Perhaps then segue away from the design stones, which I completely do agree because I think sometimes, uh, especially with our country being very multicultural, multi-diverse, I think it really does make you think about in being inclusive. I think that's what a lot of us always relate empathy to. It's the emotional sense. But I think uh, then it is quite tangible because of the finished product in itself. Christine, I'd like to ask about your Indigenous Partner Design Studios at RMIT. As you began in the introduction uh, of this podcast about being cognizant and being very aware of us designing on country and the relationships we have with it, uh, if you could uh, share your experiences with it also about this also. Sure. So over the past, I don't know how many years, I've been working with a number of Indigenous communities at RMIT in the Architecture and Urban Design School, along with my colleague, Jock Gilbert, who's a landscape architect who predominantly works through the landscape program. And um, I've been working in the architecture program. And my work with Indigenous communities hasn't really begun from a place of empathy but when I reflect on it, it certainly has shifted my view on architecture and that relationship to empathy and how we understand the spaces around us. The work has really begun from me as an Australian architect thinking about the place that I live on and the fact that we are designing on this beautiful land that has 60,000 plus years of culture and history and how important it is to really understand the places that we are designing on and understand what it means to actually be, de be designing on the land of our First Nations people and to consider what the opportunities are for our built environment when we actually begin to celebrate that culture and knowledge and think about I mean, I find it incredibly exciting and I think it's a, a, a fantastic place for the profession to be in when we actually do think about, well, what, what might architecture look like when we do begin to rethink architecture in relation to the place in which we are designing on from that perspective rather than from the perspective of settlement, which is, you know, most of people from my generation when we studied architecture we, it, we were taught history really as beginning from a, a point of settlement or occupation rather than thinking about Australia as this place which is incredibly rich with many different language groups and such a sort of diverse range of cultures that are here and how that actually might begin to inform architecture. So I've been working with a number of Indigenous communities, the Krayrurong community, in the Western District of Victoria with Uncle Leonard Clark, along with Nawi Professor Carolyn Briggs AM, and running a number of design studios with those two amazing elders. So Uncle Lenny is a Koori Court elder, and he came to us 
which was very exciting. And he says, I've got this vision for this land that I live on. He is coming from a position of wanting to address the over-incarceration of our Indigenous people in this country. He has a deep connection to that being Kyuri Court Elder. He sees his community constantly being incarcerated. And his position is, well, how might we address this and how can architecture actually, how can we draw on the skills of architects to actually begin to address this problem through the provision of a cultural arts and music facility that he would like to build as a way to not only celebrate the amazing talent of our Aboriginal people through music, but as a way to provide ongoing cultural and education um, opportunities for the communities as a sort of crime prevention tool. So how can you actually build a building that not only celebrates the culture for all of Australia and for the world, but in doing so might actually provide, well, will provide opportunities for communities by giving them employment opportunities and education and so forth so that they don't actually end up in a place of crime. And it's an amazing opportunity for students and I think probably transformative, or so they tell me, in the way that they are required to be empathetic and begin to understand the experience of a lot of our First Nations people because they spend three days out on Cray or on country where Uncle Lenny is telling them the stories of his own people, of his own daughter, his late daughter, that was a victim of many, you know, of, of the injustices of our current system, of his grandson that has been incarcerated since the age of 15 and, you know, many of the, the community there that have been put into prison. So I think the students are, are sort of hit with that at the outset and I think it really immediately impacts their own thinking about the importance of the project in itself and the importance of working on a project like that. So that's been amazing. And with Nawi Carolyn Briggs, and I co-teach with uh, my very good colleague, Stasinos Mansis, who's a practicing architect who works for Jeefa Greenaway, who's one of our few Indigenous architects in Australia, along with Green Shoot Consulting. And so we've been working together and Nawi Carolyn Briggs came to us and she said, when I walk around Melbourne, when I walk around the streets of Melbourne, there is very little to remind me of my ancestors and my culture. How can architecture begin to address that? And so that's what we've been working on with our students, how we can actually create some visibility to First Nations culture, so that when they're walking around the city, they feel at home, they feel welcome, and they feel included. And I think that's a, that's a different kind of empathy. And it's been a really amazing opportunity for the students to work with her as well. I could imagine it's been an eye-opening experience because personally, I had something very similar in the past. And that has challenged me in terms of understanding what I've learned and what I had to unlearn and then going back to it um, and so it was dealing with a lot of it was processing a lot and then just be able to reconcile that 
it's okay to have these emotions while working with them. And I like to believe that that was the experience your students had to go through as well when hearing the personal stories. And just based on listening from both projects that's been presented so far, I think it's quite integral that to have empathy in our process is to be able to listen and let people speak from their experiences and work with them. Would you say that? Yeah, and I mean, listening is so, so important, but we need to do so much more than listen as well. We need to act as well. So we need to begin with the listening, but it's not enough to just listen. We then need to act. And I think that's been a struggle in the industry in relation to our First Nations culture because there's been an anxiety from non-Indigenous practitioners of, making mistakes and getting it wrong and I feel like we're sort of now beginning to realise that reconciliation is something that we as non-Indigenous people need to do Mm. and we need to we need to just get on with it and act on it and accept that we might make mistakes along the way and learn from that process. I think listening to people with lived experience I think that's actually it's taken a turn in the past few years. And I think it's become incredibly important. I'm working on a a project that looks at housing older women at risk of homelessness and the kind of lived stories of those women in that space are incredibly important. And once you hear them and you listen, you can't unhear those stories. And I think that's kind of what lies at the heart of action. Exactly. You know, so empathy, you, you start with empathy and hopefully <laughs> you you end up with trust and then action. Yeah, and stepping into those spaces is really important because it's hard. If you don't have the lived experience yourself, you think, well, maybe I can't step into those spaces. But the reality is, is that architects have some really fantastic skills and the built environment plays a fantastic role as connective tissue for a lot of social and cultural issues, not only just programmatic and functional issues, but social and cultural issues. And so to be able to kind of step into those spaces and understand uh, the building process beyond just built form, to understand what it means to people culturally and socially and how it might help marginalised communities or communities that don't have a stronger voice is a really important skill to learn and to gain. Yeah, and I think, Tanya, you mentioned the word trust and I think that's a really key point and, you know, listening and trust can't really be separated in this context, can they? Because in order for us to build respectful relationships where we are trusted, we need to begin with the listening. Uh, Mm. And And for me, I think... Yeah, empathy is about building relationships. Mm, Absolutely. Um, You know, it's the kind of foundation from which you build a relationship and trust is, yeah, incredible. Absolutely. And we need to, it's almost about flipping the role of sort of expert specialist that comes in and rather than us come up with a, a solution at the outset or think about a problem and work out how to address that problem we need to sort of throw that out the window and start with the listening and listen to the various community groups and ask them what they need and find out what what is a requirement for them and how we can begin to design for them rather than trying to sort of second guess that 
Yeah, or impose a design or impose from the top it down. Exactly. Yeah, you're designing with, but that doesn't mean that your authorship, your design authorship is taken away. Um, it just means you're designing with more depth, I yeah. would say, to the kind of briefing process potentially. Mm -hmm. There's this artist or art critic called Grant Kester and he's really interested in conversations, spaces of conversation and how they can be transformative. And he draws on feminist theory and he talks about this idea of connected knowing. I think it's in a form of empathy mm -hmm. and it's really fascinating. Basically, connected knowing is a term that Kester borrows from the feminist work of uh, Belenke, Clinchy, Goldberger and Turul, mm -hmm. and it's identified by three elements. So it recognises social, the social and historical context from which people speak, judge and act on all sides, and it takes into account power imbalances and privilege. Uh, and basically, the third thing about connected knowing is that it's grounded in our ability to emphasise with others. And so this idea that, you know, when we when we step into other people's spaces, we're respectful, we're trying to develop trust, we're willing to be empathetic, and through that we can build this idea of connected knowing. I think that's what Christine and I are trying to do in all facets of our practice. We talk about the projects we do with children and we're trying to connect and form connected knowledge with children. We talk about, you know, the Vision Australia uh, client group and we're trying to build connection not only with them but we're trying to connect that knowledge back to public audiences Christine's work in the Indigenous space and my work in the homelessness space all have this um, understanding of trying to connect these knowledges across a, a large group of people so that we can come together to build solutions or find you know there's not one solution but to find good solutions and better solutions to problems that we know we have. And to get the conversations going and, and sort of stimulate that interest and learn from others as well mm. in the process. And I think to understand that these kind of issues, that the issues that we face in the built environment are complex. They're complicated. They're not easy one-liners. They're not binary. It's not us or them or, you know, this or that or yes or no. It's multiple viewpoints that sometimes align in some respects and sometimes diverge. And how to bring them together and bring people on a journey through the work is one of the most interesting things, I think, that we do. Hmm. Do you have anything you'd like to highlight? Because I'd like to imagine that for there are budding designers and architects who would love to engage with different communities, but things that you'd like them to be aware of like do you have any lessons learned mm, to not have any preconceived ideas to be ex to be willing to it always comes mm. back to being willing mm. to listen and to let go of your prior judgments and I think when you step into other people's spaces you have to go in being prepared to apologize right? Because there's a not your spaces. But if you want to, if you want to help, if you want to be an ally in those spaces, um, you have to interact, interact, you can't not. Um, but you have to understand that this knowledge is not yours. Mm. Um, and that you're probably, well, especially me, probably going to say something stupid at some point that you're going to need to apologize for. Don't worry, I think we're <laughs> put our hands um, yeah. No, 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 I don't know why you're saying especially you 
Tanya, I think it's really important to be willing to make mistakes along the way and just suck it up. Absolutely. And learn and learn from it mm. and not shy away after you have made some errors along the way. And I think that's how you learn. I think that's also it's not only how you learn, it's how you build trust with people. Yeah. By yes, willing that's right. to kind of apologize or assess and step back and um mm. yeah, and then move forward still. Yeah. Lovely. Speaking yeah. of apologizing, I think this is the one question that may that I've been very excited to ask and probably one that I hope both of you are prepared for. So one of my favorite speakers, Brene Brown, uh, she talked about to have empathy is also to have boundaries for yourself. I'd like to believe it's for yourself, but also as the role of a designer, do you think that quote is valid what kind of boundaries (laughs) that's something I I would like to ask if there are boundaries when it comes to empathy and design then I think that's a really tricky one I think in a professional sense as an architect um you can set them uh more easily maybe Mm -hmm. than you can on a personal level um but it's you know I think the boundaries might be around knowledge and who holds the knowledge and who has the authority or the mandate to hold that knowledge Um, and then how you deal with that respectfully. But I'm not sure that answers the question. Um, It was was a tricky one. Well, in terms of the work I'm doing with Indigenous Mm. communities, it's been interesting to explore boundaries in the sense that as an architect working with a particular kind of client, we're normally constrained to very tight time frames, and that does not fit easily with the timelines of our First Nations people. And it's really important to acknowledge that and to think about how we need to change those ways of practising I have a conversation with Uncle Lenny almost every day on the phone and that's a really important part of our relationship and the trust of that relationship. Now, if you're working on a a big commercial project on a practice, there needs to be time allocated to allow relationships to develop and that trust to occur that we haven't ordinarily allowed for. So I think that's a kind of a boundary that we need to rethink in the way that we practice if we Mm. are going to be empathic designers. And I'm sure, Tanya, you would probably have a similar experience in the work you're doing with housing as well. Yeah, I think, oh, well, I definitely think it's quite interesting because I think we definitely need to redraw some boundaries. I'm working on a series of talks now at the moment Mm -hmm. for Open House Melbourne um, that are looking at kind of social and affordable housing a little bit more broadly. And, you know, it's it's absolutely fantastic because there's the state government's really committed to building social and affordable housing at the moment, which is wonderful to see because it's so important and so needed. But there's also um, kind of the the design guidelines and the policies that are laid over 
that work don't necessarily solve all the problems for the people that it needs to solve. So one of the talks that we're doing, which is great, is we're unpacking um, Sophie Dyering and Samantha Donnelly's design guidelines that they did at the XYX Lab and with the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. So they're design guides, guidelines for housing older women. And, you know, they're finding that the cohort of older women need something more and something different than, say, our better apartment standards require. So this is a case of, once again, the, the apartment standards being, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of a minimum standard. I mean, good, you know, good and aspirational in a lot of senses, but not being able to cover off everybody in one set of standards or one set of guidelines. And what's also really interesting is I was talking to somebody else who's looking at housing families who can now afford to move out of public housing. Um, But one of the problems that these families face is they're often new immigrant families, they're larger families, their kids are often still in high school or in primary school, and they can't find housing that's affordable for them close enough to their kids' schools. And so they're looking at how they might house these families and offer them the chance to buy their own apartments uh, nearby, near the Mm -hmm. existing social housing that they come from. Um, But they're finding that they just need to design these apartments bigger. You know, they really need to be, you know, they need to be made for five people rather than three people or two people. And that means, you know, bigger balconies and, you know, bigger communal spaces. And it's quite interesting. So this kind of back and forth that we need when we listen to people, we need to redraw some of the boundaries that are already in place, um, often because, you know, as Christine mentioned, um, they're not completely working. Yeah. And maybe it's less about boundaries and more about the importance of time and rethinking about time Mm. and allowance of time so that we can allow those conversations to take place. Yeah, we can shift the the boundaries boundaries that have already been set, maybe. Yeah, Um, yeah. And we constantly need to do that, right, because society changes. Like the demographics of our society is shifting. It doesn't do it super quickly, but it's doing it. I mean, look at the millennials and the baby boomers. They're now on equal footing. And that's interesting. What does that mean? What does it mean for architecture? What does it mean for design? What does it mean for all kinds of things? It's fascinating. That's um. That's quite a lot of food for thought and for many years to come, I would imagine, because I think we are part of that generation who is at the forefront of bringing change to it as well. Uh, Before we wrap it off, Christine and Tanya, I'd like to ask if you have anything you'd like to conclude to our conversation today. I think to conclude, I would really like to thank you, actually, for allowing this conversation to take place, because I think we need to have more conversations like this to think about what empathy means in relation to architecture and something that, uh, you know, I thank you for prompting me to rethink my own practice in relation to that and the work I've been doing with Tanya. And I think, you know, it's something I'll continue to think about and hope that we get more conversations like Mm. this happening within our profession. I suppose we don't really use the word empathy when we talk to each other, but then reflecting, you know, reflecting on what we do, what we do within Oopla and without Oopla, you know, it is an incredible, incredibly important part Mm. of our practice um, because we're interested in connecting people with architecture and design and the issues that shape architecture and design. And empathy is 
you know, a key foundation stone for doing that. It's been really lovely. And as Christine said, yeah, I, it does make me question about my role in terms of how empathy is being played in our designs and every day. So, yeah, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. And once again, thank you for the lovely conversation. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guests, Tanya Davidge and Christine Phillips. It was great to hear about the work you're doing with the community and we can't wait to see what you do next. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey, Hilary Duff and Max Legal-White. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.